Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Mark Tobin, founder of Coffee Microcaps. Many of you may know Mark from his coverage of small and microcap stocks on the ASX, or even his conferences in Sydney. Mark is an analyst with an interesting backstory. For the next 30 to 40 minutes, Mark and I talk about volatility and the opportunity in small and microcaps, including what we've seen so far in 2020, and how Mark is trying to shed more light on the smallest end of the market. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Tobin. Mark, g'day, mate, and welcome to the show. Hey, Owen, thanks for having me on. It's uh, something we've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, we've chatted on and off about it, and I guess no time like the present. Where are you now? 
so still based in South Africa. I was supposed to be in Sydney um, late March. And uh, yeah, that obviously didn't happen. So continuing to watch everything ASX microcap from afar. Um, and yeah, it's definitely been an interesting few weeks, no matter if you're in the bond market, oil market, microcap market, large cap equities. Um, yeah, it's been a, a, a crazy few weeks, but interesting. And yeah, lots of uh, opportunities as always for um, people who are on, on top of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those markets where I think if you're an active investor, this is kind of what you look forward to. Provided you're not getting burnt too badly. I think it's one of those things where everything's just exciting. You don't know what you're going to get the next day. Um, I figure a lot of our listeners will probably know of you, have seen some of your research around, or maybe have interacted with the company that you founded, which is Coffee Microcaps. But perhaps you can just give us the, the Mark Tobin 101 and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, so obviously to make things more confusing a uh, Irish guy who's like very focused on AS, <laughs> ASX Australian microcaps um, but yeah I mean grew up in Ireland and ended up in Australia um, in 2007 um, and was there for a while and then went and worked in London for a while and got a hankering back for the beaches of Sydney so came back to Australia 2010 and I actually lived in Australia for five years um, and during those five years I was um, working with Wilson Asset Management um, I'm sure a lot of people would would know them uh, they were a much smaller outfit when I was there I think when I started there was only six of us I think in the office we were like managing about 700 million across three LICs um, at the time and Matthew Kidman was still with them um, but yeah I was working with Jeff, Matthew, um, Chris Dutt, uh, Martin Hickson, uh, Chris, and Sta Chris and Mark now who've um, recently just left Wilson to start um, 1851 Capital but yeah I worked there as an equity analyst and I mean back then They've got a few more um, strings to their bow now, Wilson's. But back then, it was you know very small cap uh, equity boutique focus. So that's where we spent a lot of time looking at. But within one of the portfolios there, there was um, a little subgroup that was focused on microcaps, where we looked at. I think there was used to be ten in that group, where it was like ten microcaps we thought had the potential to you know, really grow significantly and move into the wider small cap market. And that was the part that I loved, you know, looking at stuff that mm. you didn't necessarily hear from brokers or, you know, other analysts or portfolio managers you meet walking up and down Macquarie Street or at briefings trying to reverse broke their positions to you. Um, so that was the part I loved. And then, um, yeah, so I've always been very focused on that side. And then about a year and a half ago, my own personal uh, situation was I was getting very frustrated that there wasn't many outlets for like microcap companies to get their story out there. Um, especially if you're not in the junior resources end of the market or the biotech side of the market, um, which I think are actually very well served in the Australian context. 
Um, so I said, right, I'm going to start my own conference and I'm going to get the companies that I want in um, to present. And I thought I had a pretty good network of kind of like-minded investors, but on the re- retail, you know, mums and dads and on the obviously institutional side from um, people I used to used to know in the industry. And yeah, we did the first conference back in April, uh, had great feedback on it, did another one then in October, which was about twice the size of the one in April. And we were supposed to have, I guess, the third one in March. It didn't, didn't come to fruition. Um, but now we're starting to move things to the virtual sphere, um, mm. doing some content online in terms of getting companies to present and yeah, still trying to help companies get their get their story out there because I think there's a lot of good companies in the microcap space um, that just just don't get an opportunity to air their story. Yeah, it's one of those things, right, where they want the attention. You want to give good companies a platform, but you also kind of want to avoid those that can potentially damage your reputation. But I think as we'll get through in in this conversation being in small caps, being in micro caps, it's been your focus for such a long time. And I was hoping that you and I can talk about why it is that small caps appeal to you from a higher level, kind of get the lay of the land, and then maybe we can jump into some some of the more recent events. Yeah, I mean, I think the appeal to me is because, um, you know, they're exciting. They're generally in industries, new industries, you know, there can be like market leaders, um, highly innovative. Um, it's much easier access management. So you get a better understanding of the company. Um, you know, a lot of the ASX 200 guys, you know, you'll maybe see those management if you're a retail investor or get to chat to them one-on-one, be at the AGM, if even then. Um, whereas in the microcap space, you can get a better understanding of the company, who's running it, um, because management are a lot more accessible, I would say, even for retail investors. Um, and just the, the potential to grow. Um, you know, if, if you see, you know, CSL or West Farmers or, you know, CBA, if they're up 20, 30% in a year, you know, that's a good year for them. Um, down the microcap end, you know, you can have stocks that are up triple digits um, and, you know, that's not unusual. Um, similarly, you can have ones which are down 70 or 80 on the flip side. Um, so it's not all a bit of roses down here. But to me, it's like the, the ability to get um, the outsized performance gains on, on the microcap end. Um as well as the kind of general interest factor, you know, it's not, they're operating in small niches of either the Australian economy or the global economy, um, if they've got a global business, and um, where, you know, you mightn't have even thought that this was an industry, but it is. Um, in terms of lay of the land, I mean, Australia is quite a big microcap market. Um, you know, you've got just over 2,000 companies listed on the ASX. And, you know, outside of the top 200, you know, you quickly fall away and start getting into microcap land. What is a microcap? It's a very loose definition in Australia, I find. Uh, in America, it's a very hard and fast definition. It's anything under $300 million as a market cap. In Australia, some people use that. That's what I use. Um, other people say it's under $500 million. Other people say it's anything outside of the top 200 index. Um, but 
whichever way you slice it and dice it, you'll end up with a universe of 16 to 1700 companies um, that can potentially fall into the micro cap definition mm. for Australia, depending on what you're using as your benchmark to, to define a micro cap. So there's a lot to look at, um, a lot to research. And, you know, you can very easily, I think, you know, build a portfolio um, of microcap companies, um, which, you know, would be significantly different to what you're holding in um, an ASX 200 ETF or probably what's in your super fund, given that, you know, the super funds play around in that um, large cap end of the market. Um, and the other, the other thing with microcap search is, when I mention ETFs, that's um, I guess a bit different to the rest of the equity market. Is you can't get access to microcap um, ETFs. Uh, there's a few in the US. Um, I don't think they actually serve their purpose. I think it's a bit of mm -hmm. mismarketing. Um, but there's none in Australia, and there's a few reasons why I don't think it would work from a structural point of view. Um, but that's another reason, you know, where why I like microcaps is because you don't, you're not competing with ETFs. Your prices aren't getting distorted by ETFs. Um, you know, the prices are literally what the buyers and sellers are doing on a particular day. Mm. One of the things about those small cap ETFs is that some of them use not the sort of full replication strategy. So they don't use you know, they don't follow a standard index because they can't buy everything because the tails are so long and the liquidity is so low. So they'll use, you know, synthetic exposure like contracts or futures and those types of things. So I'm, yeah, I see that all the time from, from looking from the funds and ETF side of things when you're researching those, you can, you see it, um, it happens quite, quite often. But we've spoken before about one thing and that is, you know, we talk about, so there's like maybe a potential liquidity premium there for small cap investors and micro cap investors. But we've, we've spoken before about analyst coverage and how that's also um, something that you might come across. It might be few and far between when it comes to some good quality small caps. Oh, very few and far between and actually getting less. Mm. Um, some recent research, I say recent, probably came out last year from the guys at Goldman Sachs and they were just doing... Um, you know, analyst coverage across small caps. So like for micro caps, it's going to be even less, but I think the trend, you know, you can easily, you know, replicate the trend down into the, into the next lower level. So in small caps, um, just to reference the actual research, analyst coverage has been coming down since the GFC. You know, there's less analysts around, there's less coverage. And within that coverage that is actually happening, the analysts are all tending towards the sexy names in that particular part of the market. So, you know, if it's, you know, resources at the time, you'll see a lot of analysts will be focused on resources. Or if it's tech, you know, there'll be a lot, a lot of uh, focus on tech. But the analysts that are even covering small caps are all tending to follow the same companies. Mm. So the spread of analysts and across the spread of companies is actually getting narrower. And then if you go down into microcaps, I mean, it's, it's even less to maybe non-existent. Um, you know, most of the microcaps I look at might have one broker following them. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, 
at the margin, I would say it's definitely not true, uh, especially if you get under like 100, 150 million, mm. they probably have no broker coverage whatsoever. They might have a few um, stockbrokers who are kind of across the story or an analyst at a particular house who's monitoring them because they um, are a competitor maybe to a bigger, larger incumbent um, or they're in the kind of same industry sector. So they're just monitoring them from afar, but not, you know, really doing, uh, I guess, the research notes that people would receive in their, their email inbox. So yeah, that is definitely coming down, but that's also creating great opportunities, I think, for retail investors um, because you can then do your own work um, and find uh, names that are off the radar of the broader institutional market compared to you know what you can find um, in small caps to an extent but you know large caps you know it's very hard to um, I think get an edge on what is known about the company I mean I just checked there quickly before we came on I looked up um, BHP just for just out of interest sake it's got 87 analysts globally covering it so <laughs> I don't know what research um, you know, a retail investor could do that, you know, these guys haven't uncovered. Whereas I could look at, you know, some of, some of the microcap names and uh, if I pull a huff in Bloomberg, there'll be zero analyst covering. There'll be, there'll be no information there. Um, so that'll just give you an idea of like the, the depth. And basically, as you come down the, the ASX, you know, the analyst cost starts to fall off as the, as the market caps gets, get smaller and smaller. Hmm. You mentioned... Like there's so much to talk about when it comes to micro caps. And I think it's something, I don't know if it's paradox, but you would, you would say there's so much more alpha opportunity in, sm in smaller micro caps, yet it gets so little attention from analysts. I mean, I, I reckon if you ask most equity analysts, if they want to cover small caps, they'd say absolutely, because that's where they see the opportunity. But I guess the, the institutional side of the businesses that they work for want them to cover the, the blue chips and what have you. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was effectively how you go about finding information on these smaller companies. Like what are the resources that you use? Um, so, I mean, the number one resource for me is the ASX announcements page. That is like the, I look at that daily. Um, I usually wait till like the end of the day, like half five, six o'clock. And I literally go down through every single announcement. And, you know, if the, the ticker code isn't something I kind of recognize, I like click into it or, you know, anything that comes up with the little red asterisks. Um, mm. If it's not a big 200 uh, name, I'll like click into it. And like, that's the starting point. So then you'll come across... Because, you know, even even for me, for somebody who looks at, you know, I, I came across a company the other day, flow hit end of October last year, didn't even know about it. Uh, I saw an announcement coming up about it the other day. Um, so there's things, you know, because, you know, some of these floats, they're, you know, they're, they're raising 20 million and, you know, they managed to get that away pretty quickly and it lists and, you know, you, you 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 just kind of you kind of miss it in the day in the in the day to day. So I think that you know that's probably the number one resource for me. Twitter, I think, is a very good resource as well. There's a lot of smart people mm -hmm. on Twitter. Um, you know, posting either research that they've done or insights that they have. Um, 
and obviously you got to take away a pinch of salt and know there's probably some hidden agenda behind it but as a starting point to finding new names and things to look at and things to research i think it's a very good um resource and one that's um i know you have spoken to andrew a few times uh, that i think has come along in the last say two years which i think is an excellent resource is straw man mm. um, there are some very very smart people um posting on straw man and just even following what they're doing uh, the research that they're doing the insights that they can give on stocks um, how they think about valuing them i think that's another important point um, that comes across in straw man a lot you know i tend to look at pe uh, as my kind of valuation metric um, other people use discounted cash flows other people use you know EBITDA, EBITDA no has just become very popular in the last 18 months when I was working as an analyst we hardly ever looked at that um, whereas now it's become quite popular as, as the main metric I see analysts quoting in paper in the paper or on TV or whatever so none of these valuation techniques are perfect you know sometimes it's you need a kind of a blend of them or just use the one that works for you knowing what its limitations are because you know none of them are none of them are perfect um, but I would say they're the top three the ASX announcements page number one Twitter number two and the uh, straw man number three yeah some pretty solid resources and they're open for everyone to use um, I'll put some links in the show notes to follow you because I know you produce a lot um, of small cap and micro cap insight one thing I want to talk to you about is people think about smaller micro caps, particularly micro caps, because I guess it's this issue that we have with this information asymmetry. There's not a lot of information out there, but if you do look hard enough, you can find the right stuff. But then from the company's perspective, they want the story to be told. And sometimes they shout it so loud that you can think, well, geez, these guys are, you know, they're just promotional managers. Do they actually know what they're doing? You mentioned earlier on about just reaching out to management. How do you find it in micro caps with dealing with management? And how, are there any like rules of thumb you use for, I know we talk about skin in the game all the time, right? But are there any rules of thumb that you use for identifying good quality management versus those who are more spruiking it and promotional? Yeah, I think yeah, a couple of points on that. I think um, management who don't engage with potential or existing shareholders, that's like a big red flag to me. Um, because that suggests that they're the company is listed, but they don't really care about their shareholders. So they're like running it, you know, for the benefit of a couple of insiders, the board, mm. the management, one or two large shareholders, something like that. Just to give you an example from the Wilson days, we came across this company, I won't name it. And, um, I, I pitched the idea that at our, um, Tuesday ideas meeting and, Chris Stott said, yeah, no, it sounds interesting. You know, give them a call, try and get them in for a meeting or we'll go out there to our base in Sydney, I think in North Sydney somewhere. Uh, anyway, I called the, the CFO and he basically told me in no uncertain terms that you know, the top 20 on 78% of the company. So like, why are you phoning? You know, there's, hmm. there's nobody going to sell down. Like, like what's, what's the point in having a meeting? I was like, okay, well, why are you listed then? You know, why are you like putting out like results and presentations? You don't want like, you know, any external interest in, in the stock. So, I mean, and that's coming from, you know, an institutional fund manager calling a company about becoming a potential investor um, and they had no interest in this. Um, so I think 
on one side, companies who don't promote themselves are nearly just as bad as the over-promotional ones. Because if you don't promote your story and try and gain a bit of interest, where does the marginal buyer come from? Where does the price discovery come from in terms of actually reflecting the, the true value? You know, you, you can have a company that very quiet doesn't do anything and, you know, it's on a price, a P of, let's say, eight or nine. But if they actually communicate, not in an overly promotional way, but with a standard, I would say, investor relations program, you know, they could probably be trading on maybe 12 or 13 times. So I think not promoting is nearly just as bad as over-promoting. The over-promoting ones, I mean, they are, I think, they have a great saying here here in South Africa, every sport has its injuries and the over-promotional ones are just like that. You know, they're just part of the universe. And you, I think if you follow the universe for a while, you tend to spot the ones that are doing it. You know, even, even if you click into, um, again, the ASX, is, it's not the greatest website, but it does have uh, one good function is, you know, when you go in into the individual company and they'll say like, look at all their announcements for like 2020, for example, if every second one has like those little red eyes be, beside it, <laughs> exclamation marks, you know, you can say, oh, you know, these guys like to tell the story, maybe a bit too much. You know, that's a red flag for me. You mentioned skin in the game. Um, yeah, I think we talked about this before, but mm. um, I come from, from a slightly different angle in terms of skin in the game. Better to have it than not, I'll say that from the outset. But when insiders own too much of the company, they can start, I find, like just running it for their benefit and not to the benefit of minority shareholders. I see a lot of marketing from the small cap institutional managers, you know, when they're, what do they look for their companies and, you know, they list out a whole lot of things like skin in the game, you know, they want management aligned with shareholders, um, which, is, which is good to have. But I find if you get kind of over that 35% level I found, um, of insider ownership, then they're like, you know, say they own 60% of the stock is tied up between the founder who might be the chairman, CEO, other directors, CFO, you know, then I find they generally are not really operating in the best interest of shareholders. So I find if, if you have management and board kind of in that kind of 15 to 35 bracket, I think you have them sufficiently aligned with minority shareholders, but not overly um what shall i say kind of overly positioned in the company that you know they kind of dismiss um the needs or wants or even suggestions of um minority shareholders because i know a lot of like active microcap investors and they'll often do presentations to the board where they've done you know a lot of work on you know here's comparable companies, here's suggestions of what we think you should do in terms of, you know, selling off non-core assets um, an investor relations program, um, you know, instituting a DRP maybe, you know, other capital management initiatives and gone and presented to two boards, you know, two or three of them maybe together. And they're like, yeah, guys, thanks for coming. Nice presentation. And, you know, they just like walk, walk away from it. Um, so you can you can get that you can get that in the skin in the game situation. I find in microcap, large caps doesn't happen. I mean, mm -hmm. you 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 look at the back of the annual report for CSL, for example. All the top twenty shareholders, they'll all be like, 
generally these days anyway to be big index fund um, providers Vanguard BlackRock um, and then you know a lot of the large uh, super funds will be in there as well you know to be no like retail guys you flip that around to the, the micro cap annual report and you go through the top 20 it's all generally you know um, people's SMSF accounts, uh, little PTY holding companies, you know, it's much more retail um, focused. And you got to, and like companies got to be able to, when you're a microcap, you got to understand that you're dealing with, you know, retail shareholders and they have different needs to the institutional shareholders. Mm, absolutely. Um, you mentioned 35% there. I think we've talked about this before. So it's kind of just like a, a rough rule, rule of thumb, right? Yeah, it's just a rough rule. It's just, it's just one that, you know, I've kind of come to find. It's like a happy medium, you know, looking at a lot of micro caps like over time. That, you know, when you've got large shareholders, um, let's say they're at 60%. One, you know, they're not really sellers probably not buyers either so it decreases liquidity if you decrease liquidity in an already low liquidity environment you know there's anything to help the, the like share price um or valuation and price discovery whereas if they're kind of down in that like 15 to 35 i feel like they've got enough invested in the company it's probably a large chunk of their like personal wealth tied up in the in the stock so they're you get that alignment that skin in the game that a lot of fund managers talk about in their marketing but not so much that you know that they can be sweating something that they're going to try and get uh, maybe a contentious um you know executive remuneration package or something like that that they're trying to put through with an agm that's not going to be you know a simple um straight through vote you know it, there's a, there's enough kind of minority shareholder interest there that if they wanted to get their back up about something you know that they actually have enough power come agm time or an egm to say yes no um to certain resolutions that might be put to them so that's why i kind of feel you know as i say there's no what can i say empirical evidence from the academic community that i'm referring back to it's just a, a rule of thumb from i guess a bit of um market experience over mm. the years for sure and that's i think that's a fair enough um line in the sand to be honest in my experience i can't think of too many market caps that i've invested in where the founders own more than 50 percent maybe Prometicus from memory they own quite a bit when i first invested in them but i can't think of too many that um have gone to over 35 percent at least at initiation one thing we talk about a lot and i guess it's this common maybe you could, it's not necessarily a misconception but i guess just in investing in its entirety we talk about volatility as a measure of risk you know i'm probably more on the fence of dismissing that as a measure of risk if you actually understand what you're doing and when people look at micro caps they think oh it's volatile like you mentioned earlier it's up five percent it's down ten percent like you know some people that are particularly new to investing can't make heads from tails you recently wrote an article about this and you did um this kind of quantitative study over the i think it was a small ordinaries index where you looked at the absolute moves for the index uh, during coronavirus and I thought that was a really interesting point for us to discuss because some of the findings in there were you know, quite profound. And I think it, it, it serves the point of 
you know, volatility is your opportunity when it comes to, to micro caps? Yeah, so the so the one I looked at was actually the Emerging Companies Index, Emerging which companies, is the, right. a, yeah, the ASX Microcap Index. Um, and basically what I was trying to see was, you know, was say the back end of three, you know, um, up until about the third week of March, you know, was that as volatile as the GFC? Because that index actually goes back to 2003 right. or, you know, because we've been in such a long kind of upward trend bull market you know maybe we've just forgotten about like you know kind of big down days or down months or whatever um and while march the quarter itself if you go like jan to the end of march it was just a hair under being as volatile as the october to december 2008 quarter um but if you disaggregate it down to the next level in terms of um monthly figures March in terms of volatility was way above October 2008, which in that kind of quarter was the most volatile month. It was about 30% more volatile than October 2008. So like March in terms of volatility um, is definitely the most volatile month for um, ASIC microcaps we've seen in the last 16 years. That's as far as the index data goes back mm. and definitely way, way more than was ever experienced in any month through that, let's say, August 2008 up until March 2009 um, type period in the, during, the, during the height of the GFC. So way, way, way above it, um, which to me, I think, creates opportunities. And there was some opportunities which I have even now, I think, like evaporated because of the strong bounce we've had the, coming out of the last week of March and let's say the first three weeks of, uh, of April. Um, and that's the thing, I, I, I did an article about this, it was probably about a year and a half ago, or two years ago now. You know, you gotta have your bear market watch list. I think uh, we discussed that at the time. You know, companies that you like, where you think, oh no, they're like too expensive, or the, the, the usual saying, like a lot of the brokers will give you, yeah, but it's always expensive. So like buy it now anyway, because it's always expensive. Um, but you gotta have that list off to the side and be ready to act on it then when, you know, a situation like March arises that, you know, you get the baby being thrown out with the bathwater and now is a chance to like, you know, buy things that you've been wanting to buy for a long time. Um, but, you know, the valuation hasn't allowed. Uh, and you you got to have the, you know, your outlook on the company, how it's affected by coronavirus, all it. Take that into account in the decision, but you got to have that um, list. The other thing I think as well is, you know, volatility, I agree with you, you know, I don't think it's a measure of risk at all. Um, the risk is not knowing what to do in volatile times. So if you know your portfolio well, um, and you know the price is like really dropping you will know I should be buying more or I actually I should be selling because you know the the forward outlook is you know terrible given you know where where the what part of the economy the like the company operates in but that's all about understanding what you're investing if you know what you're invested in you can react to the volatility um, and whatever that might be, it might be holding, might be buying, might be selling. But if you know what you're invested in, then volatility, you know, it just provides opportunities um, one way or the other. You, you mentioned that from the study that, you know, it was, it was a very volatile month. 
I know we don't like to look necessarily from a top-down perspective, particularly when it comes to micro caps, but if you were to just to throw something out there, why do you think that it was such a volatile time even compared to the GFC? I think it was more volatile than the GFC because, you know, this is a global pandemic, which we haven't experienced um, unless you're around for like the kind of Spanish flu in like 1910. Yeah. The GFC started off in the in in the US, and and I mean it did it, it, it its tentacles reached everywhere in time, um, but the speed at which coronavirus was impacting you know countries and economies, I think that was different to the GFC. You know, I, I remember working uh, at the time when. Um, you know, the like subprime thing started going and one or two hedge funds at Bear Stearns started to get into trouble who were doing, um, you know, subprime mortgage-backed securities. And, you know, it was it was like a niggle off to the side of the, um, uh, of the market and it then just became progressively bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, coronavirus, you know, it started off in, in China, but, you know, very quickly started engulfing, you know, lots of economies countries and you know now there's basically kind of nowhere untouched globally so i think the speed of of, of from problem to you know um worldwide problem i think that was different to the gfc you know i think there was a good seven to eight months from when those two um bear stearns hedge funds kind of was the first inkling of like things were not were not happening right to actually you know october 2008 like kind of worst month in that period i think you had that like kind of longer longer spread i think that's why things were more volatile in march you know right right around the the markets compared to you know the gfc it was a lot more concentrated due mm. to the kind of the speed at which the virus started disrupting uh, economics globally. Did you, you, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. And when we talk about this risk um, and the volatility and opportunity, you mentioned that maybe it's bounced back so quickly. Uh, maybe it's because it's an Australian thing, you know, as we record this, it, 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 it seems we're getting slowly on top of things. Um, and I say that, you know, touch wood. But for you, did it present any opportunities during the the most volatile period of it? And I guess the, the follow-on to that would be, are you still seeing that now? Or are you, are you thinking it's a lot more, uh, I guess, it's well-priced now in microcap land? Yeah, I thought coming into it, so to kind of give you an idea, I thought coming into it, I thought, Microcaps generally were expensive. Like I was finding it hard to find anything that was like cheap, good value, you know, anything that was of reasonable quality, I think had gone up a fair bit. Um, mm. You know, the index itself was up about 30% in 2019 and had a good January and, you know, early start of February. So I thought things were expensive. Um, for the really good quality names, um, I think like Energy One for I think is one we we kind of both know. I mm. went from over three dollars down to um, I think a dollar sixty or something like a, at the lows. At a dollar sixty, mm. I was like, yeah, it's fair value now. I wouldn't say it's cheap, but I thought it was fair value. Like I was kind of hoping it get back to a dollar. <laughs> um, but 
you, you know, and there was, that was kind of replicated across a lot of other names that I look at. You know, they, they had come back a lot, um, but I still didn't think they were cheap, like outright cheap yeah. um, for, I guess, the potential I kind of would see for them going forward. I would have said they were like fair value and, you know, maybe they were, a, if you didn't own already to, to maybe um, get a position in them. Um, but if you already owned them, I was like, you know, is there, you know, is there a really compelling reason to like kind of buy it at, uh, at this valuation? And, you know, a lot of those now, you know, have kind of bounced up 30, 40, 40%. And now I think, you know, they're probably on the overvalued side now. Um, mm. Not crazy valuations, um, but I would say they're kind of overvalued uh, at this point with, with the bounce back, but um, you know, t- t- we're we're going to see a lot um, more in terms of volatility play out, especially over the next ten days. As a lot of the appendix four Cs start getting reported, um, and mm. when we get the June results in in August, and I think um, we'll have a better idea of how things have affected these companies and what the what the outlook will be um, given under whatever this new normal is going to be. Um, and there might be some opportunities around then if if um, people see that uh, through the 4C or through their, through their annual report that's going to come out, actually, they were harder hit than I thought or, you know, it's going to take them longer to bounce back or, you know, they're finding it difficult to operate in the, in the new normals. Yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, just the, you could call it a V-shaped recovery in micro caps. I guess the thing is people should be mindful, as you said earlier on, to have that buy list, to have the list of stocks that or companies that you just would love to buy. You just don't think the time or the valuation is right. Um, and I think I, I tend to agree there because I, I feel like the bounce back has been so sudden, yet the information that we have on hand to know for certain if these companies will or won't be uh, impacted, you know, it's just not enough to justify some of the bounce back in some companies. Like there are a few names that I know of. Uh, for example, I'll give one example, which is a company called Volpara, which is slightly larger than probably you, you would ideally look, like, look at. But it's a company, it's a brilliant company, but at the same time, you know, they're acknowledging that there are going to be issues and they're doing a capital raising, but it's snapped back pretty strongly. And now it's, you know, the capital raising's kind of dampened it a bit, but at the same time, we just don't know. So it's very hard to put a valuation on that. I, I wanted to maybe end this, as we come to the back end of this, end this short conversation with you, Mark, and, and ask you, um, as, a, as a micro cap investor, as a small cap investor, what... This is a. I don't want to stamp this conversation with something that's kind of like transient. But when it comes to small cap investors, and particularly the private investors that you deal with and that you interact with, when it comes to their portfolios, I'd love for you to give an example, if you have one. Maybe I'm just catching you off guard here, of some some returns or some type of figure that I guess people who haven't invested in micro caps can can really think about. I mean, I know of personal portfolios that have compounded at 20 to 30% for a very long period of time because people have really put in the time and effort with micro caps. Have you come across that type of thing? Uh, I think, I mean, I, I'm going to be putting it out um, next week. So um, 
it's a review of all the like microcap fund managers and their products. Cool. Um, and like over time, I mean, the numbers look, you know, not great now after, uh, after March, but for the longer term funds, um, you know, who've got like a five or 10 year track record, you know, they, they're still, you know, up in kind of double digits, uh, on a 10 year basis, like even with, uh, you know, a big, um, drawdown, you know, plus 20% in, um, in March and they've generally outperformed the index. It like goes back to that alpha. The majority of like microcap fund managers that I follow, you know, if you put them against the ASX emerging uh, companies index, they've generally out, outperformed that because of this um, informational asymmetry. And, you know, if you do the work, you, you, you can find it. So I think it's, you know, would I, advise anyone to have a hundred percent of the portfolio or the SMSF in microcaps? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's definitely from a diversification point of view, a conversation that people should have with their financial planners, advisors, wealth managers, whoever, whoever they're, whoever they're dealing with mm. in terms of trying to, you know, you can diversify away from the large cap Australian equity exposure uh, and get like differentiated returns and a differentiated uh, look to your portfolio. But on the flip side of that, you know, you don't have to go into international equities and worrying about currencies and, you know, the impact of that on returns uh, in your portfolio. So you can get, you know, equity diversification but Australian dollar base and not have to worry about like hedging and international equities in order to try and diversify your equity portfolio. Um, because even, I mean, when we talk about diversification, it comes back to the, the ETFs again, you know, take the ASX 200, you know, 45 or 8%, I think the last time I looked, you know, it's made up of the top 10 companies. So you've got 200 in there, but the top 10 are driving, you know, 50% of the performance. So, I mean, how specified is that? Mm. Um, and same with, like, microcap ETFs. So we don't have them in Australia, but I looked up the main one in the US, which is the, like, iShares microcap ETF. You know, the number one holding has got a market cap of $4.6 billion. So, mm. you know, it, it, it does, to me, I might, it'll be very hard for anybody to do a proper microcap ETF because one, you know, as they try and if they do the full replication strategies you talked about, as they try and do that, they bid up the prices and then suddenly, you know, the market caps move up and, you know, they're now no longer microcap. So they've got to be like rebalancing, I would say nearly on a monthly basis in order to try and keep the, keep the market caps within microcap. And that same US one, I, I went down through the whole of the top 10 and the average market cap of the top 10, and it's a micro cap ETF, was $2.2 billion. Um, and I mean, if you apply the exchange rate that to put it into Australia, I mean, what would that be? 2.2 would be heading up to around $3 billion uh, Australian. Now, there's no way anybody can tell me that that's like uh, uh, replicating a micro cap um, portfolio. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think... You know, if you're starting out in microcaps, I think um, there's a plethora of good microcap 
products out there. Um, there's about six or seven LICs. You know, Wilson Asset Management's got one. Uh, Acorn has got one. Um, Perennial have got one. Uh, Safira is another one who've got a, an LIC. And then on the managed fund side, there's at least another 30 um, ones there from, you know, UBS, Perpetual, uh, Acorn have got uh, one there. Uh, Safira have also got another one. Uh, Tony Hansen, who's been on your show, I mean, his, it might be say microcap in the name of his fund, but he's very, mm. his portfolio would be very much weighted to the microcap end of the market. Um, OC Funds Management in Melbourne, uh, Nova Port Funds Management. You know, there's there's quite a lot. So, you know, you don't have to go in and start buying microcap shares in order to get exposure. You know, there's there's some very good fund manager options out there if people want to, I guess, access the asset class from, from a professionally managed um, standpoint. And, to go, and I mean, that's another resource probably that, I don't use that often, but can also be kind of um, helpful is, you know, if you sign up to a couple of uh, the managers to their newsletters, you get their like little monthly report or look at the LICs, NTA announcements when they come out every month. Um, you know, they'll usually give the top five or top 10 names in the portfolio. Mm. And then, you know, that's a way to find um, new names. Actually, good little trick now that we talk about LICs <laughs> is... Um, so LICs under ASX listing rules are required to disclose their full portfolio as at June 30 in the in the annual report. Now a lot of fund managers um, want their competition knowing that, so it's usually buried right in the back of the annual report. Um, but I always look at those because that will give you every single holding, not just their top ten, every single holding that they had at June 30 and that could be you know a great way to find new names because they might be talking about it in their marketing or mm. their results that they publish on a monthly basis but they might be slowly building a position they might be selling out on the flip side you got to bear that in mind but in terms of you know if you want a list of probably most of them hold between 30 and 60 names um, so you can get those six or seven LICs, get their annual reports, look at the, you know, the 30 to 60 names that they have in there. And, you know, that can be a great way to start. Okay, here's a mini universe I can go mm. and look at. And the reason I like that for retail investors as well is, you know, you've had institutional fund managers who do this on a day-to-day -day basis as their job. You know, they've also kind of done a lot of quality control, weeding out mm. of... Um, the more promotional spruikers that we that we talked about, you know, if they've emitted their investors' capital into something, um, you know, I don't think they would have done that without um, a fair bit of due diligence and research before they've, you know, made that commitment. Um, because, you know, as I say, if there's a, they've got 1,600 names to choose from, and they end up in a portfolio of 60. You know, they've filtered a lot out to just get down to the get down to the 60. Mm. That's one thing that I utilize a lot. Like I, obviously, I try and get as many good fund managers, analysts and investors on this program, but it's definitely something that I keep going back to is follow the monthly reports, follow the quarterlies, any commentary, follow them on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever, because there's some real nuggets that come out of those reports. And it's interesting about the LICs. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that you could get the full report in the annual. I have read some annuals, but I didn't go that far. So they're doing a pretty good job of hiding it. <laughs> yeah, no, they, 
that's it's the same i mean that's the that's the that's the that's the one uh, other tip i give like retail investors um if they're looking at ipos um like whenever we were assessing ipos like jeff uh wilson yourself say start at the back all the stuff they don't want you to read is at the back <laughs> um Great. yeah you know and that's where you know there's you can find a lot of stuff of uh you know success fees if the ipo gets away you know the like ceo is going to get a half million dollar bonus just for getting the you know the thing listed all these little things that are lumped into you know ipo costs mm. when you see them on the pnl the first time they, they report but it's actually you know you can find a lot of hairs on things if you if you start with the ipo prospectus and work from the back to the front the back to the front that's great. That's great. You mentioned um, you might be putting some pen to paper or some digital paper in the next week or so. Um, it'd be great if you can share that with us because I'll chuck it in the show notes and um, hopefully distri- distribute to everyone. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go, and I, I re- I've got a feeling we'll do this again sometime in the future, but um, the thing that you're working on now um, Coffee microcaps. You said that there have been two events. Unfortunately, I didn't get to either of them, but I've, I know a number of investors who went along and said it was the best um, investing conference they've been to. So credit to you. But uh, maybe you can just give some lip service to the the new uh, virtual version of that now. Yeah. So the new virtual version is um, we are doing a coffee microcaps morning meeting. So instead of having a, a trying to replicate the full day-long conference that we would normally do in person. I'm getting two companies in every Thursday morning. Initially, it's going to be on a fortnightly basis. Um, So the next one is happening tomorrow, Thursday, 23rd of April. The one after that is going to be Thursday, the 7th of May, and the 21st of May. Um, So we have two companies. They would do their presentation as they would normally do at the conference. So it's kind of 20 minutes, 15 to 20 slides. And then we leave 10 minutes open for Q&A. Company A presents and then kind of company B presents. Uh, It's a true webinar format. So it's beyond Zoom webinar. Um, I'm sure lots of investors are dialing into conference calls. And Mm -hmm. I think potentially it's going to be things haven't changed a lot by the time we get to November there'll be a lot of AGMs uh, will be done in the same format and that way you know we can still give a platform which is why I say how to do still give a platform for ASX microcap companies to get their story out there and for ASX microcaps mm. to hear it and engage with with, with the management team um, in in in, in a virtual format for now but you know if we were at the in-person conference it's, it's trying to replicate that as, as closely as as possible and if people can't join the the webinar if you're one of these new working from home people um the recorded version of the webinar goes up on our new youtube channel so all of these coffee microcaps morning meetings will start to go up in a playlist there um every two weeks or so so if you subscribe hit the little bell notification icon you'll get an update um when these go live and that's going to be for the balance of this year um probably where we're going to be doing most of our um i guess company-based content the plan is at this stage to do another in-person conference like the two we did in 2019 the last week of october subject to 
um, COVID-19 um, restrictions having been lifted enough that you know people can come and travel because for the first two conferences you know I actually had a couple of CEOs um, some came internationally we had one CEO come from London for the for the presentation we had two CEOs come over from Perth um, I know interstate travel now is extremely restricted mm. um, and we have a lot of attendees who come uh, interstate that mm. last conference I had you know one guy flew from Perth these are retail investors these are not institution but retail investors one came from Perth we had uh, three from Adelaide uh, three from Brisbane uh, four from Melbourne um, and they're flying up on their own dime uh, to come and see the kind of list of companies that uh, I've managed to pull together for the conference and hopefully they can walk away with some value from uh, from the day yeah you often find that when you go to these events um, that you, you often don't get the companies that you want to see you get you know the ones that that can I don't know afford to be there let's say but I found the companies that you had presented, particularly the first time around when I was looking at this, I was very impressed with what you pulled together. I've, I've got a feeling, Mark, that, that some of the people that have already tuned into your webinars are going to be a bit disappointed that you've done this promo because there could be a lot more people watching uh, the next time around. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's great for you and it's great for small caps yeah. as well. So I'll, um, I'll just say thanks again, mate, for taking the time out. I'll put some show notes in. I'll put some links to your Twitter because you know, my understanding is that you're pretty open with Twitter and you, you love to chat to people. So I'll chuck all that in. Um, and mate, I just want to say thanks again for taking the time out to chat with us. Uh, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I mean, if anybody wants any companies uh, to be involved in the coffee microcaps, you know, morning meeting, please get in touch with me on either on Twitter or they can email me at markercoffeemicrocaps.com. You know, I'm very happy to reach out to, whatever companies people are interested in and, you know, try and get them on and try and uh, get their story out there. Yeah, great, mate. It's a great thing you're doing. Once again, Mark, thanks for joining me, mate. Cheers. Thanks, on. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.